training and witnessing baptism and, and, and membership, and now in, in coming to the Word. And Lord, as we come now to listen to your Word, we pray that you will give us concentration, that we will really listen, that you will speak to our minds and our hearts and our wills to obey you in our lives, that we may bring glory to you in everything that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me tell you the story of a missionary who went to Burma, uh, a very famous American missionary. His name was Adoniram Judson. Okay? Now, on his way to Burma with his wife Anne, she soon had to give birth to their first child, and that was on board the ship. And unfortunately, after she gave birth, the baby died. And then when they got there, they lived in a really bad uh, kind of situation, condition, very squalid. They were toiling away, trying to learn the language. Uh, they were isolated from their family, and they were persecuted by the government. And then they had another child, and at seven months, this child died as well. And then, when Britain started a war with Burma in that time, uh, Judson was in, put in prison. He was not given enough food to eat. It was a hot, crowded place that he was in for two years. He was bound to iron fetters, and every day there was a threat of execution. And when he got, finally got out of prison after two years, his wife died, followed by their third child six months later. And at that point in his life, he went into a very deep depression. And he said these words. He said, God to me is a great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. Now, have you ever been in situations where it just seems that everywhere you turn, you are surrounded by problems and enemies? And have you ever got to the point where you feel like God isn't there and I just feel like giving up hope in God? Because David experienced the same thing in the Old Testament. He had lots of enemies. So let's come now to look at his experience in Psalm 27. And let me read to you verse 1 to verse 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Now who are these enemies that David is talking about? He doesn't specify at all here, but if we read the history of King David in the books of First and Second Samuel, we have a, a good idea of who were David's enemies. So we know that there were two major periods in David's life when he faced a lot of enemies. And the first time when it was before he became a king, King Saul was the first king that God had chosen. But this King Saul turned bad pretty quickly and started to disobey God. And God rejected him and chose David to be the next king. And of course King Saul was very, very jealous of David and he put in place a kind of search and destroy policy for David. So David had to be on the run. He had to be a fugitive for many, for I don't know how long, until Saul finally died in battle. And the second time in his life when he had a lot of enemies when, was when his own son, Absalom, rose up against him to try to take over the throne. And he had to flee from his own son in shame until 
Absalom, his own son, was killed as well. So David knew from personal experience what it was like to have enemies, to have people plotting against him to destroy him, even though he had done nothing wrong against them. Now in this psalm, he talks about his enemies advancing against him to devour his flesh. Verse 2. He speaks about his enemies and foes attacking him. Also in verse 2. And then in verse 12, he also says, Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Now his enemies are, are evil people. He says that they are violent. They are out to get him by hook or by crook. They were false witnesses. Now in those times, it was a very serious thing to be a false witness because in court, the testimony was established by the witness of two or three people. So they didn't have DNA like in CSI, right? So if you were a false witness, you could contribute to somebody's being punished for something they didn't do. Perhaps they would even be executed for something that they didn't do. It's a serious thing. David's enemies were false witnesses rising up against him. Now in this psalm, David is a righteous man, not because he's a perfect man, but because he trusts in God and he wants to live his life in God's way. And David is a righteous man who had many undeserved enemies. And that is really the typical experience of anybody who is righteous or who wants to be righteous. There are many examples of this in the Bible. So uh, the prophet Jeremiah, for example, is somebody who God called to serve him at a very young age to, to speak his message uh, to the people of Judah. And he had to proclaim the very unpopular message uh, that God would bring judgment on Judah. And his, his life was full of misery. So the people, his own countrymen rejected him, his own family members, the king of Israel, they kind of plotted against him, they put him in prison, they threw him in a well without food, he was arrested. That is the kind of experience that he had. His life was full of anguish if you read through his book. And the supreme example for us of somebody who suffered as a righteous man was Jesus. See, Jesus was the, the king of heaven. He had all the legions of angels at his command. But he came down to earth and was not born in a king's palace. He was born in a humble stable. And he lived his life on earth without anywhere to lay his head. And finally, he was opposed by the religious teachers, the rulers, the authorities, and they turned against him. They got his own disciples to betray him. And he died on a cross, alone, rejected. And his, his friends all left him. He was completely alone. That is the experience of somebody who is righteous. David experience of having enemies just points out that all people who are righteous like Jeremiah, like Jesus, will face enemies. And that is the same for us too today. So, do you face enemies? I'm not talking about having enemies because you did something bad against somebody, okay? If you have done something wrong to somebody and you have enemies, you deserve it. You're, you, got, you have enemies not because you're righteous but because you are unrighteous. But we are talking here about having enemies, even though we are righteous. We are talking about facing opposition, suffering, because you live a godly life, despite the fact that you live a godly life, and also 
even though you have not done anything wrong against that person. God tells us to expect opposition in our lives. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What kinds of enemies could we face? Well, in some places, Christians actually face real persecution. They face harassment or imprisonment or torture or even death because they're a Christian. And we thank God that in this country, we don't have to experience that. But maybe you face discrimination or you know, people who are very negative or people who ridicule you at work or at school because you're a Christian. Or maybe you face family members and loved ones who oppose you because you come to church, because you're a Christian. Or in some cases, you might even face opposition from other Christians in church who think that they are on God's side against you. Or it could just be somebody who has made your life really difficult, really miserable, even though you don't consider them as an enemy, so, so to speak. See, in a broader sense also, our enemies are not just our physical enemies now on earth, but spiritual enemies. The enemies of sin, of Satan, of demons and spiritual powers who oppose God. And in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read a few weeks ago, it says that the ultimate enemy is death. See, we have both physical and spiritual enemies. What do we do? God's people will face enemies, so what are we going to do about it? Well, that's the next part. Let's look at what David does with his enemies. I'll read to you again from verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army beseech me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. David is supremely confident in God. Even if the, the enemies come against him, his armies marching against him to start a war against him, he knows that they will stumble and fall. He knows that God can be trusted and God will rescue him. He will not fear. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Now what does it mean that the Lord is my light? It means the Lord is good to me. The Lord guides me. The Lord has shown me favor. He will save me from my enemies. And therefore he can confidently say, Whom shall I fear? Of whom will I be afraid? See, in this psalm, the opposite of trusting God is fearing the enemy. Whom do you fear? Who are you afraid of most? Well, don't be afraid of the enemy, but put your confidence in God. That's what David did. And reading now from verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. So here in verse 4, David says, Lord, let me live in your house, in the house of the Lord. Now for David, the house of the Lord was a 400-year-old tent from the time of Moses. It was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It was a place that God lived, the place to meet God. This, uh, and he goes on to say the reason why he wanted to live in God's house is because he, f- he knew that God's dwelling place is the safest place on earth for him to be. Now I know that uh, Singaporeans in general are, are quite afraid to go into Malaysia because of the security situation there. I can say this because I'm a Malaysian, right? So, um, you see, you walk on the streets and you're afraid of, I guess, being kidnapped or having, being robbed or you know, somebody snatching your purse, taking your wallet, whatever it is. Now that's why people in Malaysia, some of them, have gated communities that they live in. And you go into this gated community and you're stopped at the checkpoint with few guards standing there. And they'll check your IC, your identity, ask you who you're going to see and all this kind of stuff. And they'll let you in only after they're satisfied with you, right? And when you get inside, there are, there are still guards patrolling the place. Uh, there are high gates, there are guard dogs, there are security alarms, things like that. And you went, enter one of these houses, you feel safe. Right, you feel secure. Nobody can touch you there. You can put your mind at ease and stop worrying, and enjoy your time in Malaysia. See, that's what David feels like in God's house. See, he feels that he's completely safe and secure. And in the day of trouble, God will keep him safe. Yes, outside the storm may be raging on, but God is going to hide him inside His tabernacle. And then the image here changes. He sees now himself surrounded by enemies. But he's on a very high rock. They can't touch him. God has exalted him above his enemies. Meaning that God shows publicly that he's on David's side. He's fighting for David. And now the image, she's back again to the tabernacle. And David now is sacrificing to God. In response to God's deliverance, David is sacrificing with joy. And he's singing and making music to the Lord. See, for us Christians now, God's house is not a tent. It's not a physical building like in the Old Testament. But God's temple is a person. The person of Jesus. Jesus is where we come to meet God. And Jesus is the one who enables us to come into God's presence, to meet with God. So, what do you put your confidence in? Who do you trust? Who do you turn to? In the day of trouble, who will be there for you? Do you look to your bank account, or your insurance policies, or your friends, your family, your job? Or is God the stronghold of your life? Is He your rock? See, we must put our trust in God, not in any other thing in this world, and He will save us in the day of trouble. And the day of trouble doesn't just mean 
the trouble that we face in this life. But there's going to be one ultimate day of trouble, which is the day when God comes to judge. And if we place our confidence in Him, God will save us on that day. Now that leads us to ask the question, is David talking about deliverance in a physical sense here or a spiritual sense? Is he talking about physical rescue from enemies or spiritual salvation from sin and from death? Well, earlier we said that our enemies can be both physical and spiritual. And in the same way, God's deliverance is both physical and spiritual. It can be in this life and also beyond this life. See, God can rescue us from our enemies now and God does do that for us. Although He has not promised to do that for us always. But more importantly, God promises to save us from sin and death and hell. See, salvation ultimately is spiritual and regardless of what happens with our enemies in this life, one day God will remove them and He takes us to be with Him in heaven. That is the most important salvation of all. So even though David is here talking about uh, being rescued from his enemies physically, well, at a deeper level, this psalm looks forward to a, a spiritual salvation from spiritual enemies. Now in verse 7, the mood of the psalm suddenly shifts. And from the heights of his confidence, it shifts to a kind of dark despair and uncertainty. Look at verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. So now he's praying urgently and intensely and, and even desperately. See, his old fears, his old worries and doubts have come again to bother him. And he's afraid of the possibility that God might turn away from him in anger. God might reject him. Maybe he's been praying for a while, he's been wondering, how come God has still not answered my prayer? Is God angry? What's the wrong thing that I've done in my life? I know I'm not good enough for God. Maybe I've sinned. I don't deserve. I'm not worthy. Why should God listen to me? Maybe those are the kinds of thoughts running through his head. But even in the dark time, we can see his faith shining through. Look at verse 8. He says, Seek God's face. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. He tells himself with resolve, I must seek God. He says, I must continue to trust God despite all my worries and my doubts. And then he reminds himself in verse 9, You have been my helper. We see, he's thinking about God's track record in the past. And he's saying, when he says, You have been my helper, he's remembering every time when I've been in trouble in the past, God has always been there for me to help me out of that situation. So how can I not trust in God now when he has always helped me in the past? See, and David is so sure that he can even say, Though my father and my mother forsake me, I know that you will receive me. He's so sure that he can even say that. Even if the people who are closest to you 
abandon you, God is still there for you. So how is it, you think about it, how is it possible for David to be so confident at the start of this psalm? And then now he's gone into the, the depths of despair. He's a bit like a yo-yo, you think. Why? Why is he like that? You know? Does he have a split personality? You know, one minute he's fully confident in God, the next minute he's so unsure. Well, the psalm shows us that it's possible for us to trust in God and yet continue to have questions. See, we have questions not because we doubt God, not because we don't believe in God anymore. We have questions because we do believe in God and we don't understand if God cares for us, why this situation is still like this now. That's David's situation. See, it's like we have a a conversation going on inside our heads. A conversation between fear on one hand and trust on the other hand. So it's like, I trust God. I know He will deliver me from my enemies. He will look after me. I'm confident in Him. I don't have to be afraid of anything. But when I look outside the window, all I see are enemies surrounding me. See, my prayer doesn't seem to have gone any further than the four walls of this house. But wait a minute. God has always been there for me. right? God has helped me and even if my father and my mother should forsake me, I know that God will not. So I must see God's face. God, don't, don't, don't turn away from me. Don't reject me. Listen to me. Of course God will not re- reject me. Of course God will not forsake me. I'm confident in Him. It's a bit like Gollum in the, in the Lord of the Rings, right? Talking to himself. Well, sometimes we do have a, a conversation inside our own heads. See, if we are honest with ourselves, sometimes we will face doubts. We can go through times like that. And it's really no big deal if you have faith when times are good. If things are going well in your life and you have faith, well, it's not hard. But it's when the going gets tough that your faith is put to the test. Because when the going gets tough, we are confronted by two opposing realities. See, on the one hand, we see our enemies, those people who oppose us and attack us, and they are very real. But on the other hand, We see God. We see God's power and God's trustworthiness. So which is more real of these two things to us? Well, in in 2 Kings there is a story, well it's not a story in the sense of it's false, it's a true story that happened, where the the Syrians were at war with Israel and uh, Elisha the prophet kept telling the king of Israel what they were whispering, what the Syrians were whispering in their palace. See, he had uh, kind of miraculous insight. And the Syrian king got so fed up about this that he sent a huge army to the town where Elisha was living in and surrounded it. Okay? He wanted to kill Elisha. And Elisha's servant woke up one morning and got out of the house and saw this huge army of chariots around him. And this is... Uh, I'll show you um, the passage I'll read a bit for you. Second Kings chapter 6. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed, Oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. 
And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, Elisha's servant saw the first reality, the, the enemies surrounding him, but he didn't see the second reality that is God's power, God's armies surrounding him. See, God's armies are far more impressive than those chariots from Syria. And God has them surrounded. So, whenever we have the struggle in our own minds between fear and trust, and whenever we are confronted by these two opposing realities, one we can see and one we can't see, which one should win? Well, for David... God's trustworthiness won the day. Psalm 27 again. I read from verse 13. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The issue is not whether we can question God. We must never question God. We must never doubt God. That is not the issue. The issue is that we must not allow our doubt to turn into unbelief. We must not allow our doubt to win. But we must know that our God is a big and a great God and that must conquer our fears and our doubts. So we must be firmly convinced by how good God is to us. And we must have an unshakable confidence in how trustworthy God is. That is what the psalm is saying. See, faith is a bit like marriage. Okay? Marriage is both an event and a journey, right? So if you are married, okay, you can, you can remember that you got married on a particular day. You can go back home and look at the photos and you know, uh, remember this is the day that I got married. But you know, marriage is not just something that happened one day in the past. It's a lifelong process. You can't just say, okay, I'm now married. Okay, I'm just going to move on now to the next thing and, you know, and forget about the marriage, right? No. Every day of your life, you still need to nurture your marriage. You still need to work on it and communicate and do things together, work through your disagreements, keep the flame of your love alive and well. And that is the same with faith in God. See, one day in the past, you started to believe in God. Maybe you can even remember the exact date. But that's not all. You don't just say a prayer of faith and then forget about it. See, faith is a lifelong journey. And there are many struggles on the way. There are many doubts and worries and fears. Many times you'll be tempted to get out of it. But you have to fight all these things and keep trusting in God. See, just like marriage, faith must not just start well, but it must end well. See, faith that ends well doesn't mean faith that never has doubt or faith that never asks questions, but faith that wins over all of these doubts. Faith that can look at all these doubts and still can say to God, I am confident in you. And we've seen how David was surrounded by enemies. And we've seen how David remained confident in the Lord. And the next part we're going to see how his faith and confidence affected how he lived and what he lived for, his commitment. So let me read to you from verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. And also from verse 8, My heart says of you, Seek His face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. See, the aim of faith, the objective of true faith, is to bring us to God's presence. Some people use faith as a way to manipulate God, to give them what they want. See, it reminds me of uh, my experience of Chinese New Year when I was a young boy, right? And uh, every time Chinese New Year, you know you have open house, and some of these youngsters would come off the street that nobody in my family knew who they, who they were, or they'd come inside the house and, and say Happy New Year to my parents and you know sit there in one corner and munch on their peanuts and drink their Coke, right? And uh, they won't move until my mom gives them an arm and straight away they'll be off to terrorize the neighbor next door. Okay. See, for them, Chinese New Year was just a time to abuse the generosity of a stranger to get a bit of pocket money. And if you're honest, sometimes these people treat God like that. See, they say that I have faith in God, but actually what they want is the blessings of wealth, health, popularity, power. See, they have no real interest in God for who He is. They don't really want a relationship with God. They only want what He can give to them. But David wants one thing above all. The greatest blessing that he wants is God Himself. See, he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek Him in His temple. He wants to always be in God's presence. Of course, we all know David knew that being with God does come with benefits, right? I mean, the next verse in verse 5, he knows that being with God will keep him safe from his enemies. But that's not the only reason that he seeks after God. The main reason he seeks after God is because he desires God himself above all else. And not just because he wants the things that God can give to him. So do you seek God like David? Now, if you're honest with yourself, if you could name one thing in your life that you want above everything else, what is that thing? Would it be money, maybe, or things in this life? Would it be just comfort or ability to enjoy life to the full? Success, fame, respect from other people, or power and influence over others, or maybe uh, spouse, family? One thing we must seek, it says here, to be in the Lord's presence, to be accepted by God, to please God. That is what should count most in our lives. That should be our foremost priority every day of our existence. See, even if you have gained everything else the world has to offer, you are going to lose all that the day you die. And the only thing that will matter then is whether you are in God's presence, whether you are in the house of the Lord and God will accept you into His dwelling place forever. Now you may ask, but how do I seek God? Well, some of you love playing computer games maybe, and if you like computer games, right, you will figure out a way of uh, finishing your homework or doing whatever you can, as quick as you can, so you can sit down in front of that computer to play the game, right? Or some of you, what you want most is 
relationship with somebody. And if, if that is the case, well, nobody has to teach you how to pursue that. You know straight away what you must do, right? To, to, to find out more about that person, to spend as much time as you can with them. And it's the same with seeking after God. If we truly want to seek after God, we know how to do it. It means that we want to hear His voice speak to us. We want to read His Word. We want to learn it and study it, reflect on it, even memorize it. We want to communicate with Him. We want to talk to God in prayer. We want to praise Him. We want to thank Him. We want to pour out all our problems and sorrows to Him. And we want to ask Him for the things that we need. It means that we want to enjoy God's presence. And we won't think of it as a waste of our time. See, I know I'm talking to time-poor Singaporeans here, right, who are harassed and who are you know, overworked and pushed to the limit. I, I struggle too. I know that deadlines, burdens of life, of you know, day-to-day life, these are struggles that we all face, right? We need to make time for God. We need to carve out time for Him. If you have to make an appointment with God in your diary, just like you make an appointment with anybody else, right? Spend some time with God, even if it's only 15 minutes every day. Do that. Reflect on God's word and pray. Not, just, not because it's a rule that you must follow, but because it's a routine that helps you to maintain a relationship. All relationships need work, need constant work. And same with the relationship that we have with God. So if you don't have enough time, cut out some of your TV time, some of your internet time or Facebook time, and spend it with God. See, I know that you'll probably find it hard and struggle just like I do, but just keep trying. If you fail, just keep trying and do it again. Don't give up. Now, Another part of seeking God is to ask Him to teach us how to live. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. That's very interesting. Why does David say, teach me your way? Because of my oppressors. What has learning God's way got to do with his oppressors? Well, I think the most natural reaction to our enemies is that we want to retaliate. We want to get them back, right? We want to be bitter. We want to be angry with them. It's very, very tempting to to lose our temper with them and say, well, it's their fault. They started it. They provoked me. And that's when we need to pray, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a straight path, O oh Lord. See, when I respond to my enemies, I don't want to sin against God. I don't want to be ungodly, to be unrighteous. I don't want to become like them, in other words. Help me to respond to my enemies in a fair and godly way. But you might think that is, that is weak. That's for weak people, right? I mean, surely if you don't stand up to somebody, they're going to trample all over you. If you don't fight back, they'll take advantage of you. Well, of course, there are times when we have to defend our, uh, our integrity by, you know, if you're unfairly accused, I'm not saying we mustn't do that. But what he's saying here is don't retaliate. See, defending yourself is very different from taking revenge, retaliating, you know, giving them verbal abuse or maybe plotting to take them down, something like that. Listen to what David prays in the next verse, verse 12. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. See, basically David puts his fate in God's hands. 
He says, God, if I walk your way and my enemies happen to take advantage of that to destroy me, what's going to, what am I going to do? Well, God, don't turn me over to them. You see, I, I trust it in you. I leave it in your hands to make sure that you, know, you are the one who, who makes sure that tr- uh, truth and justice prevails in this situation. You are the one to set the record straight, not me. I won't take it into my own hands. So I want you to protect me and I want you to vindicate me and defend me from my enemies. And then, lastly, in verses 13 to 14, David says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. So at the end of the psalm, guess what? Those enemies, they are still there. God hasn't gotten rid of them yet. How do we know? Well, David says, I will see the goodness of the Lord, meaning that it's in the future, meaning that it hasn't happened yet. But he remains very confident in the Lord. He's so confident that while he's alive, God will rescue him from his enemies. And so he tells himself and he tells us to wait for the Lord, to be patient, to take courage, to take heart, and while we are waiting for God, to be confident. David knows that God is going to answer his prayer. He just doesn't know when. You see, and he he hasn't seen the answer yet. So he's stuck in a in between phase where God has promised to answer his prayer, but he hasn't got the answer yet. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to be confident in the Lord. He's going to tell his heart to keep believing, keep trusting, and relying on God, and wait for God's salvation. And that is the heart of what faith is. See, the very nature of faith means that we wait for something that we do not yet see. And that's exactly what the Bible says in Hebrews about faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And who is the perfect example of faith? Well, it's Jesus. He's the perfect example of faith. So let me read to you again from Hebrews chapter 12 this time. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus had to endure sinful men too. The opposition he endured was to the point of having his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. And yet he did not retaliate. He did not take things into his own hands. He trusted God all the way and he was confident that he would see God's goodness in the land of the living and therefore he waited for the Lord. And so let us imitate Jesus' faith and trust God, be convinced of his goodness. See, God can be trusted. Whatever problem you might be facing in this life, know that God allowed it for a purpose. He will eventually remove it. He just doesn't tell you when. 
but we will see God's goodness. You must believe that. So if you or maybe your loved one is struggling with some medical problem or a problem at work, maybe your work is there's unreasonable demands placed on you, or maybe you have some problems with your colleague or your boss, or maybe your work is just boring and difficult, or maybe it's a problem in your family, unhappiness caused by people that you love, or relationships that don't go the way that you hope. All of these things. God promises to take away the problem for us. He doesn't tell us when. It could be tomorrow. It could be in a week or in a month or in a year. Or it could be that God wants you to carry this for the whole of your life. It could be that even. But even if that is the case, we do not lose heart. Because death is not the end of the game, right? So in Second Corinthians chapter 4 again, let me read to you from verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, as we saw just now, God's deliverance is only partly to do with the things of this life, with the hardships and difficulties that we face now. Ultimately, God's salvation is spiritual and eternal. It's about God taking us to be with Him forever. And then there will be no hardship and no pain. See, God may not have promised to take away all our problems and our sicknesses, our opposition now, although we should keep still praying for it, that, praying that God will take them away because God can do it and God often does do it. But one thing that God does promise is eternal glory and joy and freedom from suffering. So, to borrow some familiar words from Romans chapter 8. Trust that God is working for your good. Trust that God loves you and is for you and not against you. Trust that God is, will give to you all things because He's already given to you the most important, the most precious thing to Him, that is, He has given you His Son. And trust that nothing in life or death can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. And so stop feeling sorry for yourself. and Don't be like a baby that just screams whenever it can't have everything right now. Be a grown-up. Wait. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and you will see His goodness in the land of the living. See, I mentioned the missionary Judson at the beginning of the sermon. He went into the deep depression, but he did eventually recover and went on to do a tremendous amount of useful work in Burma for the Lord. And 30 years after his death, there were 7,000 converts to Christianity in Burma, 63 churches and a number of schools, a Christian publishing house, and 100 years after his death, Burma had 200,000 Christians. See, Judson learned from the most painful experience that Psalm 27 is true. It's true. So, 
like Him, let us also learn that God knows me, God sees my need, God cares about me even if nobody else does, God will take away the problem even if it's not now. One day, God will come for me, so I must trust in Him, remain firm in my faith, and not give up my hope in God, and God will give me the strength to live every day. So let us pray and sing with David the words of confidence from this psalm, and mean them, mean them in your life every day, until the Lord Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed we thank you for the precious, precious words of this psalm. We want to pray, Lord, um, you are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? You are the stronghold of our life. Of whom shall we be afraid? Lord, we just thank you that indeed you are a God that we can trust and even though we are surrounded by enemies, we know, we are confident, we say that we trust in you. And Lord, one thing that we ask is that we may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life to gaze upon your beauty and to seek you in your temple. pray that you will forgive us of the times when we do not believe you Forgive us of our sin and we pray that you will help us to trust in your precious promise. Give us the strength to seek after you every day in our life. Give us the strength to endure the difficulties and hardships that we face in life. That we may continue to trust you and that we may seek you most in our lives. That you may be our foremost, our top priority in life. And so we pray you help us to remain confident in you that we will see your goodness in the land of the living. And you please help us to wait for you, to wait for that day, to be strong and to take heart. Lord, we also, what we ask for ourselves, we also want to ask for the nation of Japan, which we've been praying for this month. And we just ask, Lord, for the church there that you will strengthen them in their faith. Because we know that in the eyes of their society, they may be weak and insignificant and defeated. But we know that in your word, your church is triumphant. You are, they are the people of God, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, reigning with Him. And so we pray that you strengthen them in their faith and you give them good pastors and leaders and evangelists who can lead the flock, who can bring others into the fold, who can be trained to do your work and who can have compassion on the lost. And we pray for the spread of the gospel in a land that is held in the grip of materialism, in the grip of cultural conformity, in the grip of its traditional religions. And we want to pray that, Lord, your power will break through all of these things and that you will uh, rescue the Japanese from uh, their spiritual bondage and open their eyes to the spiritual realities of sin, of death, of judgment and hell. We pray that your gospel will go out through the land. We pray for uh, many workers from Japan and from other countries to be able to do that work 
of evangelism and church planting. We pray for churches there which lack pastors because many pastors are now at retirement age with nobody to uh, replace them. We pray, Lord, that you will raise up people and send them into the harvest field. We pray especially that men and women will be converted, but especially men because there are so few of them. They're all uh, held in the grip of their work and unable to come to church um, on weekends even. So we pray, Lord, for your work to be done there, that you will strengthen and encourage those who labor in that country. And we pray that around your throne we will see countless Japanese people praising you one day in heaven. We pray all this to your glory and honor in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.